<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 314 with my guest, Renee GM. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. I'm uh, not a doctor. Uh, I'm barely a human being. And uh, this isn't a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. That doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. But go check out the website. Fill out a survey. Maybe we'll read your uh, your survey on the show. Um, we got a forum you can browse. A lot of really supportive people there in the uh, in the forum. We got blogs you can read on the website, guest blogs. You can go there and you can financially support the show, which is hugely important. Um, anyway, I was at my support group, one of my support groups earlier tonight, and somebody put forward the question of um, forgiveness. And people were talking about how they forgive, how they, how do they reach a point of being able to forgive somebody. And something that always kind of gets under my skin is when one person tells another person, you should forgive that person. Because to me, forgiveness is a byproduct of something. Forgiveness, I can't I can't force my way into feeling forgiveness. Forgiveness to me is a feeling, uh, an absence of resentment at at somebody. Um, and you know, for me, it it's all about what what kind of place my spirit is in at the at the time. Um, like if I'm in a really shitty place, um, it is hard for me to forgive somebody. And I know that sounds kind of obvious on the surface, but um, if for me, forgiveness is a, it's a byproduct of my spirit feeling good and not needy or resentful. And like, if you look at that, okay, break that down, your spirit feeling good, what, what, what exactly gets you to a place where your spirit is, is feeling good? Well, for me, 
it's one of the things is trying to be of service, uh, and the other thing is trying to live a principled uh, life. Um, how how do I get to a place where I'm not feeling needy? Well, for me, I have to be uh, actively setting boundaries and respecting other people's boundaries, and I have to be taking care of myself. Um, those things uh, help me not get into a place where I'm needy. Uh, you know, and by taking care of myself, I mean things like, you know, exercising, eating well, cooking for myself, cleaning my apartment. Um, and then the last thing is how do I, how do I deal with a resentment when I, when I have it? Um, it, for me, the two best ways are journaling about it or reaching out to a friend, uh, and then just, talking about it. And I also ask myself, have I ever done anything similar to what this person has done that's making me angry? And, you know, have I ever been selfish or disrespectful or reckless or pompous? And the answer is always yes. Yeah, maybe I never did the exact thing that that person's doing, but the spirit of what they've done, I've always done. And then I also ask myself, is it up to me to try to change this person I'm resentful at? The answer to that is always no. And then finally, I ask myself, should I speak up to this person about it? And if so, how can I say it diplomatically without apology, judgment, or hostility? And very often, should I speak up to the, to this person? The answer is no, that it's not once I give up trying to change somebody, giving up the ridiculous belief that it's my job on this planet to teach other people uh, that they're making mistakes and how they should do something, once I give up that, it's so much easier to relax, not being the world's policeman or, or teacher. But for, for me, when I am doing all of those things, forgiveness comes naturally to me, especially being mindful of the ways that I have mistreated, disrespected, and hurt other people in the past. Uh, because f for me to be able to forgive somebody, I need to see their humanity. And if I can see somebody else's humanity, uh, you know, for instance, when somebody cuts me off uh, when I'm driving, I used to get really angry. I'd pull up alongside the person. I felt like the answer was to let them know that they were a shitty driver, to punish them, you know, like some crazy belief that I'm going to change how this person drives in the future. That's nuts. I can't do that. So what I try to do is ask myself, what in my past can I relate to what this person just did to me? And the answer usually comes, Oh, yeah, you drove recklessly when you were really afraid that you were running late and you were going to lose out on something. And so then I just went, okay, that person that just cut me off is filled with fear. And then I was able to let it go because I saw their humanity. So that's that's something that kind of works for me. But um, I really, really do not like when people say, you should forgive this person. Um you know, a better way of phrasing it might be, it would be great if you tried to see the humanity in this person that you're angry at. Um, 
Uh, just my just my two cents. I want to give you a uh, an update on uh, how my therapy is going. As I uh, told you guys last week, I've um, uh, we have a sponsor for the next six months, BetterHelp.com. They're an online therapy uh, provider, and we uh, I said I, I would love to try one of your therapists and work with one of your therapists so I could talk specifically about it. And uh, they said, great. So I've been working with uh, Donna Keene, who is uh, one of their, their therapists. And uh, I said that she gives me homework every every week to do. And so her homework for me this, this week was, um, with what you've learned in the past year, um, what do you now know you need to do to make a constant part of your life, the stuff that you learned? And the things that I thought I probably need to do is more trust and letting go, kind of like the forgiveness that we were just talking about, and walking through the fear um, when I let go instead of obsessively trying to control things that can't be controlled, uh, acting in a principled way, and trusting that the results are the path uh, that the universe is positive energy has carved out for me. Um, Keep doing self-care, cleaning my apartment, making my bed, um, cooking at least three times a week, going to the doctor when I need to. God, that's a huge self-care one. Um, I so often don't feel like, I don't know if it's that I don't feel that I deserve to go to the doctor, but it's not that. It's just like, I don't know, there's just kind of this wall where I don't want to care for myself. Um, and the other piece of homework that uh, Donna had me do is she wanted me to describe in great te- detail the thoughts and feelings that come with a compulsion versus the thoughts and feelings that come with he- healthy physical and emotional needs. And um, I wrote down that when I am feeling a compulsion to engage in something, for instance, um, the video game or pornography, uh, I get a spike in adrenaline, uh, my mood increases, my energy increases. I get a certain amount of tunnel vision, uh, of fantasy, anticipating what that pleasure is going to feel like. Sometimes my hands will even get a little bit shaky, my heart races, and I have difficulty listening to others uh, or getting work done. And when I, uh, when it's a healthy physical or emotional need, um, oftentimes uh, I'll become aware of this need when I'm experiencing negative emotions or or numbness instead of going to that compulsive behavior to jolt me out of it, you know, like porn or video games, um, I choose something that I can do in moderation. And even though I usually don't want to because it's something like picking up the phone or, um, you know, reaching out to someone I trust to tell them uh, how I'm feeling or asking how they're doing, um, that usually helps me stop obsessing uh, about myself. Uh, and after, the difference between what I feel after I've done something compulsively versus meeting my needs in a healthy way, uh, after I've done something compulsively, I feel shame, I feel regret. Um, uh, and after I've done something that feels good and and done in moderation, I feel emotionally peaceful. I feel more okay with the world and who I am, more grown up, less needy, and I'm much more able to listen and empathize 
uh, with others. Um, so that was my homework from, from Donna, and uh, I highly recommend BetterHelp.com. Um, check it out. Uh, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Uh, complete their questionnaire and get matched with a BetterHelp.com counselor and experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. You uh, can exchange uh, messages with your counselor. You can live uh, text chat. You can uh, phone chat and you can video chat. So uh, once again, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Uh, I mentioned last week that uh, Madison Reed is a, a, they make hair coloring kits, and I put it out there, uh, would any of our sponsor, or, or our uh, listeners like to, to uh, try their product, and then let me know how they like it, and Kat was the first person to respond, so uh, she got a free uh, home hair color kit, and I asked her, uh, how was it? And I said, please be honest. And she writes, uh, ordering was pretty easy and the package arrived fairly promptly for my country living zip code. Uh, you open the box. It's a lovely assembly of products presented in a very contemporary and appealing way. It was so cute. I took a picture. Actually, that'd be great if you hear this cat send me a picture. Uh, instructions were easy to follow. And the second pair of gloves for rinsing is genius. The cap was also appreciated since the set time is 45 minutes, so I didn't have to worry about color transfer while doing a few things around the house. The color itself was easy to mix and apply. I'm particularly sensitive to strong chemical odors and was surprised by the pleasant fragrance. The color is rich with good depth and coverage of those stubborn grays. I would suggest ordering two kits if you have longer hair. It made my hair actually feel healthier, thick, and smooth. Uh, and the package also included coupons for future purchases and information about their companion products, like the Root Touch-Up Powder, which I'm definitely going to try. Many thanks, Paul and Madison Reed. I'm a big fan of both. Cheers, Cat. So, uh, go to Madison Reed, uh, madison-reed.com and take their quick color quiz by answering a few questions about your hair. They'll find your perfect hair color match. Then Madison Reed ships your color directly to your door, complete with goof-proof step-by-step instructions. It's that easy. So, find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit using promo code HAPPY. That's madison-reed.com and promo code HAPPY. And the first person to email me um, this week I'll get you a, I'll get you a freebie, and um, we'll take it from there. Okay, I want to read a couple of surveys, and then we'll get to the interview with, uh, with Renee. And by the way, this episode was recorded a while ago, and sometimes it's hard listening to an episode that I recorded when I was uh, in my depression, and you can hear it because my thinking and my ability to put a phrase together is really fucking slow at, at certain points in this interview, like long pauses where I can't gather my thoughts. Um, and uh, unfortunately, like uh, the episode last week with Neil Brennan, we had to record it during the day at the the little office I rent. So there is a little bit of background noise um, with, uh, with people in the building. So if that drove you crazy, uh, you might want to skip this episode. It's not too bad, but anyway... 
there you have it. And um, surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by can't commit to a name. And um, about their depression, uh, uh, they give us a snapshot. Uh, washing the same load of towels seven times in a row because I can't gather the energy to put them in the dryer before they get mildewy. Lily describes uh, having dissociative identity identity disorder, which is, used to be known as multiple personality disorder. Uh, having DID is owning the greatest and most diverse wardrobe you can't remember buying. And if you want to hear a great episode on DID, listen to the one with Melanie R. That's a really, really good episode. Um, El Supergrande uh, writes about his uh, PTSD. I come from an extremely abusive childhood and never even acknowledged it in therapy because of loyal to my mother. And you, when I read that, I thought, well, what about loyalty to yourself? Uh, my my opinion is uh, when you give birth to a child, part of that deal is your kids get the right to tell the truth and that overrules your desire to hide it so that you can look good. Just my two cents. I'd rather be reading shares about his ADD. Uh, kind of forgot I was driving to work while I was driving to work. I think that that we should come up with a, like a grading system of how severe somebody's ADD is and you could it could be a number based on average how many blocks you overshoot your turn. I think mine would be probably about 3. Uh about his anger issues. Resting my head in a hole I punched in a wall. It was oddly comforting. And then a snapshot of his life. I work in a pharmacy and there have been a few times when a patient has come to pick up a prescription and I have noticed self-harm scars on their arms. I want more than anything to lift up my sleeves and say, me too, but I know that I can't. Instead, I just smile extra hard at them and hope they really do have a good day. That's so sweet, man. Uh, Moonlight Feels Right uh, shares about uh, their codependency. He made me think I couldn't live without him until he was ready to die. Then he kept telling me I'd be better off without him. He was right both times. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting, different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the anxiety in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I'm here with, uh, we're going to call her Renee so that uh, she can speak more openly and honestly. Uh, some for professional uh, reasons. Um, you're going to try to protect the, the names of the uh, 
presumed innocent presumed innocent uh, <laughs> where possible and uh, I'm glad I'm glad you contacted me uh, your your story sounds really interesting to me you've uh, you've had a lot of experience with some pretty intense stuff both both personally in your own life and um, through the the job that you do um, I think the first thing you shared with me when you contacted me was that when I aired the episode with David Hirohama, who was a clinical psychologist at Koalinga uh, State Hospital, right. um, you shared with me that you had some experience there. Can you, I did. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, I'm just going to ask you to move the mic sure. a little closer. Part of my, um, my job um, that I have, I do work with um, the criminal defense side of law. And um, for about a year and a half, I was in the SVP unit of area of my office. And that required me to... SVP stands for? Sexually Violent Predator Unit. Okay. So I worked uh, directly, you know, support... uh, I'm a support staff, so I worked with attorneys on cases and... um, And this is defending them? Yes. Okay. Yes, in defense. Um, So I worked very closely with them. Um, I went to Kolinga. We were required to go twice a year. Um, And then some of the... the, um, the clients have who have not yet been sent to Kolinga, they are they're housed at Men's Central Jail, or so I would go there weekly to see those clients. And what was your experience like? Uh, you're not an attorney. No, I'm not an okay. attorney. Um, well, a part of my job was um, to write the background stories of of how they got to where they were. Um, a lot of what we did was post conviction, so it wasn't so much that we were really, you know, preparing to defend um, the for a trial or anything like that. It was is mostly, I think, um, as the doctor explained, that these people are being held um, post conviction, and the state comes in and determines that they're, you know, likely to offend again, so they can hold them indefinitely. And what what I did or what we did is to try and help them get out. There must be people listening that hate that that is a thing, that thinks, why why would you ever want to risk erring on the side of somebody getting out too soon? Right. Um, I have a job, and I, I believe in what I do. I love doing what I do, um, but I have to admit that that was my most difficult assignment, and... I think a lot of what contributed to my eventual anxiety, panic, breakdown, um, because I began to feel that I was losing my humanity in that, and uh, it was a struggle for me because I, I'm I put a lot of um, emphasis, I put a lot into my work ethic, and I really feel like if I'm going to do something at work, I'm going to do it 110 percent, and every day I felt a struggle to do it 110%. So this was a former job? It was a former assignment. Former assignment. Okay, same job. Same job, former assignment. Correct. Um, What, how did you feel yourself beginning to lose your your humanity, as you put it? I think um, my professional life and my personal life started to kind of mix in a a really bad way. And I think that um, I couldn't I couldn't just look at this as a job anymore because I started to see the damage and realize how... The damage to you or the the, damage that they do in society? The damage they do in society. Yeah, and I think um, 
I should probably state that I should probably say that um, I've been with my particular office for a number of years and and I didn't start off in that particular assignment. Um, I initially worked uh, with special circumstance death penalty cases. That was also a difficult assignment, but one which I absolutely love doing. Um, and during that time, during the probably I'd say about four years ago, um, I learned that my father had molested my brother. And it started to make sense to me because my brother has a lot of issues and still does. And in fact, very recently, um, my brother was hospitalized for trying to commit suicide for the fourth time. And working with these people, initially, I thought, you know, again, it was my job. I can do this. This is, you know, this is what I signed up for. This is what I knew was a possibility that I'd be working with these people. And I thought, you know, if I just get to know them as humans, if I just look at that, that I thought that trying to understand their background story would somehow justify in my mind how I could continue doing what I do. Um, you and, know, and never to excuse what they did. Correct. Just, correct. Just, just to try to see the humanity, the hurt, exactly. the little child inside. The majority of my clients were were also molested as children, and and I thought, you know, they were the people that we couldn't save, and they became the people now that we want to lock away, and is that what we do with our mistakes? We just lock them up and throw them away, or is there a way to actually save them still? Can they be saved? Um, and I really thought that I could, I could do that, and it was really difficult to learn that I couldn't both professionally and personally. Because for the first time, I had to admit, maybe I can't do my job as well as I thought what that a, I could. What a difficult job to do, though, because, you know, I feel like somebody who has done that to a child. Um, so what if we err on the side of having them locked away for too long they shirked their responsibility to deal with their sickness and to do what because uh, I would imagine there are very few of them that went for help in, in, intensively and with responsibility and then did these terrible things despite that were, were there any um, maybe one the majority of the clients actually still believe that they did nothing wrong, that they didn't do what they were accused of doing in spite of the insurmountable evidence that shows otherwise. That's, they and that's still one of the really things that, that, that David said. And do you think that's them just lying to increase their chances of getting out in their own sick, deluded way? Or do you think there is such a sickness inside them that they really believe that? I think that I think it's both. I really think it's both. Um, I think they're very aware of the uphill battle they have of getting out. It rarely happens. Anyone, you know, they rarely leave Kalinga. Um, I think that it's some way for them to cope. Um, you know, some of these people. Well, a number of them still have families out there, and and you know believe what they want to go back home to their families and and they want to just you know they talked about getting jobs and going on with their lives and picking up and you know the reality is 
that's never going to happen. If they were to get out, no one's going to hire them. They have a criminal record. And and that is not true for non-predatory criminals. I just want to make that that distinction because I know many, many, uh, I have many, many friends who did serious hard time for um, drugs, you know, maybe even um, having shot someone in a gang dispute that have gotten out and gotten jobs. Right. And yeah, re- no, certainly. But um, I think in this case, there's there's a whole, and this is a completely entirely different yes. type of offender. And, you know, they get out, it, they have to let people know where they are all the time. And that's public information. And it's not like that for someone who's, you know, committed a felony of a different nature. Yeah. And they don't have to, you know, hi, my name is so-and-so, I'm a sex offender, this is where I live. It's not like that. And is a distinction made between somebody who, um, you know, there's a continuum of the damage wrought and the the things that get people labeled as sex offenders, you know. Um, can you talk about the difference in the in the continuum? What would be the, for lack of a better word, the least dangerous type of sex offender um, and the the worst type of, of sex offender, you know? Because, for instance, like somebody who, I'm trying to think of a an example of something where they're more of a nuisance as a sex offender, you know, maybe, um, you know, the, 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 the guy that, you know, with the raincoat that, that flashes himself um, or... Uh, you know the the kid who was eighteen and he was a peeping tom, or uh, I don't know. I'm they get labeled as sex offenders, Absolutely. correct? We we I had a um, I knew the case in which the um, offender basically all he would do is pay peep children to tickle their feet, and that's what he was put away for because it brought him sexual gratification. Wow. Yeah. And uh, how do you feel about uh, somebody like that? I mean, my first thought is, well, that's going to progress. That's not going to be enough. And I think that's, I think really that's the driving force behind keeping them locked up is because there, there is no evidence that these people can be rehabilitated. Uh, There's no cure. Is it, is it once they've begun to cross that boundary and touch children, even if in, in a seemingly innocuous way like tickling their feet is it is that the line that's been crossed that there's no coming back for because you know i have i received an email from a guy who is a non-molesting pedophile he he is i recall you talking about this and i remember listening to that and i thought yeah i think that's possible i think you, you entirely um because I don't believe he should be locked up because he's taking responsibility exactly. for himself. He's distancing distancing himself from his family because he has a niece who he found himself becoming, getting up to that line. He was wrestling with her uh, one day and became aroused and um, was like, "Okay, I, the, the, I'm I'm no longer safe," and I have tremendous respect for him taking responsibility for the the sickness inside him. Absolutely. And then those are the clients that I mean that, that we have they they aren't taking responsibility for the sickness. 
obviously, because it's gotten to where it's at. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I guess what if, I'm asking for is your opinion personally, how you how you feel, or do you just kind of not go there because it's so complicated and you'd become paralyzed with how you feel personally about it? Could, could you just move the microphone a tiny bit closer to you? You sure. can pull it towards you. There? Yeah, that'll okay. work. Okay. Um, the question was... Um, I probably asked you about three questions <laughs> where my phrasing of it was uh, a novel. Um, I guess the, how do you feel about the, the ones where it's, where it's not as severe, the guy tickling the children's right, how feet? How I feel about that? Um, how, what should be done with him? Um, I don't, I don't believe that he should be locked up for the rest of his life. Um, but I also believe in accountability and unless I, I think there are outpatient programs that he could be monitored through and still be allowed to be home with his family um, in that particular case. But there are others that should never get out. Does he have children? No. Okay. No. Does he have access to children? Is that mm, part of the monitoring to make that, sure that he doesn't Yeah, come? That, exactly. I mean, that's part of any, you know, they, they can't be near parks. They can't be near schools. Um, I've, I remember cases where um, there there were children in the house, so they the, they couldn't go back to their house because there were children there. That was the I condition see. of the release. Well, you know, my thought when I hear that is if this guy wants to molest, being he's, told he shouldn't do that, you know, he's gonna he's gonna go do what he's got to do and hide it until it's discovered. Right, and a large for I had a client one time who completely accepted responsibility for what he did, and he said, you know, I, he does want to get out, um, but he said, I can't be near children. I shouldn't be in this, you know, I can't be in that kind of environment because it's too tempting. Um, he wanted to get out and and. Um, try and help other sex offenders. Um, I I don't I don't know if letting him out is the right decision. And one of the emails, and it might be the one you're referring to, I got was from a dad who had molested his his daughters, and he had gone to jail for it, and he was out, and he was I think he was currently in a living in a halfway house, and he was. Um, going to support groups and he seemed to have a clarity about what he had done the the damage that he had um, caused and the sickness inside of him and his responsibility to carry it forward and I, I guess I didn't have a problem with that because I feel like I feel like there's Everybody should have a chance at redemption, but never at the expense of society's, society's rights. And I don't know, maybe it's me being a bleeding heart, but I just somehow got the sense from this guy's email that he wasn't going to do that again. Is that Am I being naive? No, I don't think that you're being naive because I think I felt that too. And maybe maybe for me it's something I wanted to believe so that I could do my job. Um, but the other part, 
the other side. Um, I had uh, worked with with um, a patient, a client, and I believed wholeheartedly in his possible innocence um, because we talked so much and he shared so much with me about how he had been molested by his father and the things that his father had done to them. And he insisted that he, he hadn't done these things. And I really felt like, you know, maybe maybe there's a, an issue here that needs to be looked at more. Why would he have been locked up if he didn't do these things? Well, people go to jail all the time for things they didn't do. <laughs> I, I believe that about almost everything else except sexual crimes because I, I I often think why would somebody ever come forward with that because there's so much often shame on the part of the victim to come forward. It's such an uncomfortable experience for them. Right. There have been stories, though, in, in media about how, you know, people have made things up or, you know, children have been fed things and it results in the arrest or That's something. True. So I think that I, I think it's a possibility. Is it okay. common? Probably not. But I think it's I, I'd like to think it's possible. But isn't it usually for <laughs> conviction? It, it, it's necessary for it to be more than a single child saying something, isn't it? Usually the it depends. Well, in terms of conviction, I don't really know. I'm not an attorney. Um, but it, it, certainly in terms of them being at Kalinga, there has to be at least two victims. I think the doctor said that. But going back to that, um, I, I one time I had to attend this training on picking a jury in a sex offender um, case. And I recall um, the, the speaker was talking about how the very first thing the DA does in these cases, in, in his opening arguments, is read the police report. And right there you have a jury who's like, of course he did these things. Who wouldn't do these things? Oh, he's already guilty. He's already guilty before the trial's even begun because no one wants to hear the horrible things. Um, so, and that's a police report. And, and I have to admit, or I, I can tell you, rather, that sometimes those are not real. Those are falsified, too. Sometimes cops lie. Wow. Would the cop be doing it because he he felt this guy's guilty, there's not enough hard evidence and we want to make sure i'm doing society a favor by making sure this guy goes away i don't know i don't i really don't understand why that happens to be honest with you because i think you know you don't need to lie there's enough there's enough bad guys out there there's enough you don't have to go looking for trouble it's there yeah so you know so that doesn't make any sense to me but in spite of all that, um, I really wanted to believe this guy was innocent. But after going through so many, because, you know, I have to read all of the, the reports, the not only police reports, but uh, psychi- psychiatrist reports. And so, so many things go into this, and there's just so boxes and boxes of documents. And I have to go through all of that to help develop the story. And um, the more I read, the more I couldn't believe that he was innocent anymore. I just... You know, one time, maybe, but not two, three, and certainly not four, you know? No. And And that, that I think, again, that's kind of my downward spiral. You know, I stopped being able to sleep very well, and I couldn't figure out why. Um, I rarely took time off, but 
I took every single day off that I could. I just didn't want to be there. And that's not me. Because like I said, I put a lot of, um, I have a very hard, a very strong work ethic. And, um, and I lost it. I lost that. So what happened? Um, it, it was actually sort of um, and a misunderstanding, if you will, between myself and management over going to Coalinga. Um, and there was some issues with that. And um, I ended up being confronted by um, someone who's higher up and she essentially just berated me and told me told me that I'm not a good worker um she she just was horrible and after I hung up the phone I was in tears and I remember thinking like as she's talking to me I thought I, why is she saying this to me? Why, why is this happening? And then when I hung up the phone, I couldn't breathe. But I felt like I was going to throw up. And I, I started, I couldn't, I was, couldn't catch my breath. I thought, what the, I, am I, what's going on? I, am I having a heart attack? And I can't stop shaking. I can't, I, it felt like everything went dark. And I was the only one in my office because I worked late because... So I do. I can see you're getting emotional just recalling yeah. it. Oh, it's very painful. It is very painful still because I'm supposed to be a rock and somebody penetrated that the wall that I created to keep myself safe. And that was scary. That scared the shit out of me that that happened. And after that, I ended up going, I, I had a panic attack the first ever that I've ever had in my life and I ended up out of work for about three months on various medications for much longer than that I like went into a tailspin depression that I had not experienced before I couldn't leave the house I didn't eat I lost like 30 pounds and I was begging to go. I needed to get to a doctor. I finally got to a doctor. And I, I at one point, I had two therapists and a psychiatrist. Um, I was going to therapy like two or three times a week. Um, just trying to figure out what the hell went wrong. Um, and I think it was just the perfect storm. I think that's ultimately what it was. It was realizing that there's certain things I can't do. What were the elements of the perfect storm? Um, certainly my job. Somebody telling me that you're not good at what you do and maybe realizing that they were right because I, I didn't like what I did. I couldn't... I couldn't continue feeling like I was losing my humanity. Her, her phone is ringing. She's going to turn her phone off. I think that I think that's my also my uh alarm alarm music so I feel like oh my god, that's I got to get up. up. Yeah. No, those are my alarm. I have to have alarms to remind me to do things because I yeah. forget a lot and that's a 
that's a check-in alarm. <laughs> yeah, so um, it was it was hard. It's still hard. It's still very hard. Talk about where you come from, what your experience was like as a kid, and whether or not, if anything, that... Because you told me that you come from a really dysfunctional family. Right. And how maybe that fed into the the emotions that you were feeling on on the job and when that person chewed you out. Right. Um, So I'm the middle of three kids. Um, I have an older brother, a younger sister. Um, We're from Colorado. My father left when I was about four. And um, he left my mom and we didn't, I didn't see him again until I think I was 11. Then I saw him once when I was 28. Um, and I haven't seen him since. Uh, my mom, she didn't really, she had no formal education other than a high school diploma that she earned at night school. Um, she'd never worked. So she picked up three jobs to put food Jesus. on the table. And my brother, my older brother, became our parent. Um, at let's say at nine years old, he was essentially raising two children. And had he been molested by your father at this point? He had, but no one knew. Um, God, this yeah, poor guy. All of that pressure. Ugh, I can't imagine. No one knew. And my mom, you know, as my mom does, makes bad choices in men, and she would bring various men in and out of our house and you know they'd help put foot on the table and I think that was part of her you know why she made the choices she made because someone was helping her out financially and around I think I was nine years old she met my stepfather and I remember we were staying we were we were staying in a motel and it was the middle of the night and I woke up and my mom wasn't there and I figured it was my job to find her and I had never been in this seedy part of town and I certainly didn't know my way around and I was nine and I remember waking up and putting my clothes on and going to go look for my mother and my mom or my brother woke up and he's like what are you doing get back in bed you was know, she a drinker or a drugger no not at all her father was an alcoholic she didn't touch the stuff um, was she addicted to something? Was it she addicted to, to men? Bad relationships. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My mom, I think she's very dependent, and, but it's really strange because I didn't, I'm only beginning at, um, you know, 40 years old having mommy issues to realize that my mom was very dependent and maybe not the, that image of this, the mom who sacrifices everything for her children that I always had. You know, and and it, I didn't realize that until recently, and it's something I've been working out in therapy. Is that my mom wasn't really that great of a mom. I mean, I love her; she's a wonderful person, but not so hot in the mom department. Um, the next, when I woke up that morning, she was in bed with my stepfather, who would become my stepfather, um, and I begged her to make him leave. I remember crying, and he teases me about that to this day. Um, make him go. I don't want him here. You need to make him go. 
Um, well, how inappropriate too to entirely <laughs> do that in front of your kids entirely. Um, but I, um, we moved into his mother's house like the next day, and she couldn't stand us. And from there, we moved into our own house. And shortly after is when all of the abuse started. Um, you know, he, my, my, my first thought when you talked about your mom and, you know, that she wanted guys to come kind of rescue her financially was beware of the person that comes and rescues because that is often the mask they present so that they can then get what they want from from that family, that they can get their their kind of claws in right. for that control that they thirst for and they're probably not even conscious of it but go ahead and yeah i don't i i had never seen a man hit a woman um but i sure got used to it unfortunately what did that feel like or what did it make you think or feel when you would you see him hit your mom yeah absolutely and my brother and my sister why not you but never me i never knew i never knew I never understood why I never got hit. Um, the only time I I did get hit is um, he was hitting my mom. So I jumped in the middle and he was going to hit her with a bar stool and instead it broke over my back. But that's the only time was because I, I intervened. Um, but he never hit me. But he, he hit them all. He Are you sure you're not thinking of the movie Roadhouse? <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> if that's yeah. what it was. No, oh. but you know, I... I I think that I took a role and my role became the rescuer in, in, in a sense because my brother would just, you know, when these things would happen, it was strange because you never knew when they were going to happen. They just happened. He wasn't a drinker, so it wasn't a result of him drinking or using drugs. It was just you could be sitting at the table and the next thing you knew, you were on the floor. You didn't really? you just you didn't know. And then as time went on, you begin to develop a sense because you could feel it. You could feel that, you know, shit's going down. So be ready. Scatter. Oh, yeah. Get, you know, get everybody locked up in the rooms um, and, and get the phone. But get my the phone in case you got to call the cops. Oh, I had to call the cops all the time. How many times do you think you called the cops? On your At stuff least bed? once a month for. Well, maybe not once a month, but at least every other month. They were there at our house several times, which is why we moved so many times because we would overstay our welcome in a, in a neighborhood, and then uh, we'd move on to the next neighborhood, and then we'd overstay the welcome there. You know, all the kids would no longer be able to come over to my house and play because that's that house. Wow. You know, and 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 interestingly, my mom would always choose like upper middle class areas for us to live in because it was always this presentation of, of hmm. the happy family. But behind closed doors, we wouldn't have food to eat or there'd be no electricity or everybody would be broken and bleeding, you know? So it was just, it was, and, and her thing was, you don't talk about what goes on in our house. What goes on in our house is our business. Only everybody knows your business when there's three cop cars outside, you know? <laughs> or when your husband chases the car with an ax while we're in it, people can't ignore that. Are you kidding me? No. Are no. you sure you're not thinking of The Shining? Uh, all of it, perhaps, but I remember that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know I've got to come up with the third oh, movie before God. this is over. There'll be more. The, I'll, I'll give you the comedian is me like, oh, come on, Paul, you've got to come up with these in threes. Oh, comedy is the only way to get through this, really. Comedy and therapy. And, 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 and I, I know that you know that 
my jokes come from a place of oh, absolutely. a good place. Okay, oh, absolutely. Good. Yeah, so um, my role became hide my little sister, make sure my brother was where he was, and he was usually like in a closet, and he would just go into this almost like trance, like rocking back and forth and hitting his head on the wall thing. So he would not, my brother would just, he was gone when it, when when you know things would happen and i had to go run and call the police because he would yank the phones out of the wall so i couldn't call from the house um what would he be saying when he was doing I this i don't remember i don't remember words i just remember the sound of breaking glass what do you remember how do you remember your mom reacting and things that she would say or do when he would explode she would fight back um physically verbally physically both. but yeah yeah and then she would tell him to stop just stop she was always trying to make him stop but you know when he got tired he'd leave or the cops would take him and i actually remember one time he um he tried to beat the police up which wasn't a good idea but during in that time they didn't remove children from the house and he would be he would go to jail but he'd be back the next day why why would he be back the next because day? my mom would let him in because my mom would take him back every single time because he had a job because she felt that having food on the table and a roof over your head beats the alternative you know not having it and and okay so i have to get hit it up you know and beat up a few times but she was also convinced that she was the only one because he wouldn't hit us or my siblings when she was there oh really yeah would and, you guys tell her that? yeah absolutely we'd tell her and she didn't believe us she didn't believe it. You didn't have any bruises you could... Uh... No. Uh, again, he never hit me. Um, I remember one time my brother had braces and he hit him so hard there was just blood gushing out of his mouth. I would imagine there would have been some kind of something there, but there, she never... I suppose if she had decided to make up her mind to protect her little world that she had created in her mind to keep everybody safe she would could, could have come up with any excuse while your brother's mouth was bleeding that right somebody had punched him that you or know he was you know he friends. was the klutzy kid who you know yeah. played sports and gotten hurt a lot i mean i i don't know how she justified it or how she came to terms with all of it i really to this day don't know why i shouldn't believe but my mom usually chooses to take the path of least resistance and if you close your eyes then you don't see you know, um, so I started using drugs when I was 12 years old. And I remember I would come home so lit. And she would, I thought, how could she not know? And she's like, I never saw it. She even to this day, I never saw it. I never wanted to see it. What kind of drugs? Um, well, at first it was just pot. And then it was, uh, well, I started alcohol was my my big thing um and then i um whatever whatever was available i remember they used Why to sell this stuff <laughs> rush it was in a yeah. vial you, yeah, you just you know you kill your brain cells but hey it feels good oh my god <laughs> five seconds of like i'm on another planet <laughs> exactly yeah um and and she just pretended i mean i don't know if it was pretend or what but when i overdosed at 14 and and woke up in a hospital she had to she couldn't pretend anymore accidentally yeah on what i don't remember yeah i don't i actually have only one you know memory of of that day and it was um 
I remember walking in the snow and slipping on some ice and hitting the back of my head on a sidewalk and looking up and it was snowing and I remember how warm I felt. And I said, just leave me here. I just want to stay here. And then I remember I was, woke up in a hospital. Um, so I, I, I was sent to a place, um, you know, for adolescent abusers, users. Um, and it was like camp. Like a rehab? It was a rehab. Um, it was, it, but for me, it was like a summer camp. How so? Um, I was the youngest. I was the only girl. And my support group book became my yearbook. It was signed by all the other kids that were in. And the cool kids were the kids who got to stay in the extended program. So they kept trying to get us into the extended program. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, it, was, um, it was literally like camp, but we had to go to, you know, programs daily and, and thought and sit down and say things openly. And, and I thought, this is bullshit. Did you think you had a problem? No, absolutely not. Of course it's going to seem like bullshit. I think you had a problem. I just thought I was a really angry, pissed off kid who, of course, is going to look for something to make her feel better because everything else is shit. And why isn't anybody saying that out loud? You know? I'm not the problem. Yeah. I don't have a problem. You do. (laughs) That's so funny. You brought a monster into our house. (laughs) Yeah, and it's so funny that the both don't, the both can't exist at the same time. (laughs) You can be a monster and you can have a drug and alcohol problem. Everything would be good. But during that time, like around the time that I really started getting harder into using and around the time that I started, um, you know, I was arrested at 12 years old for shoplifting and I would run away and things like that. My, my stepfather had started therapy and, and then hard, tr- I mean, they were in therapy for quite a while. And at both, one both point, your mom and your yeah, dad, both my mom and my dad, and, stepdad. and, and it initially started, it was them and they would bring us in. And I remember the therapist saying, you know, tell him how you feel when he does this. And I was like, you've got to be fucking out of your mind because I have to go home to this. You think I'm going to sit here and, and, and tell you that there are problems? Everything's fine. We're fine. Um, but as you thought all of that to yourself, you didn't. I didn't say yeah, it out loud. Yeah. But no, we we would sit there. All the three of us would say, "We're fine. Everything's good." Why not? Why not interview you separately so that you can? I don't know. That seems like such a gross oversight, right? And it kind of developed my feeling, my attitude towards therapists at that point, um, because I really thought you're kidding, right? You want us to? We're sitting in the same room. He's going to hear everything we say. Um, I'm, I can't possibly tell you. And then I remember when, after I had um, was released from treatment, I had to follow up with therapy because they wouldn't allow me back in regular school unless I was doing programs and going to therapy. So I did, and I remember the therapist humiliating me, just making me feel like, like, let's do games. Let's. Why don't you run around the room and act like a chicken? And I was like, why don't I not? No, I'm not doing that. Even at 14, I was. I'm not. I'm not doing that. That's ridiculous. And I just felt what like possible purpose could that have served? I always felt that they worked out of like books, or or they had a checklist, and and I'm gonna try and bring out these feelings in you, and let's let's talk about these feelings. And I was so sick of talking about feelings because, in my opinion, that was my mother. I remember she used to say to me, "You know, all you need to do is cry." And I looked at her, I think I was probably about four, yeah, around 14 at this time. And I said, you know, you, you cry enough for all of us. 
Wow. I don't, I, and I, and I, the only time I cry now is when I'm really angry. And then this incident that happened, and I felt like I was crying all the time, which made me more angry. Um, Do you feel like it's weak when you cry? Yeah, absolutely. Because it reminds you of your mom, you think? I just think, yeah, well, yeah, maybe, maybe. But I just, I, it's, you know, your eyes get puffy and your head hurts and snot runs down your face and it's not pretty. <laughs> but doesn't it feel good afterwards? No. No, no, I always feel good afterwards. Because then I'm like, oh, I'm so vulnerable and it's, I'm not supposed to be vulnerable. I'm not supposed to have these gushy feelings like my mom, you know, I'm not my mom. And that's all my mom is. She's just, she's goo. My mom is syrup, you know. First of all, you strike me as somebody who has such a beautiful soft side to themselves. And I, I find myself as you talk thinking, your vulnerability is so, it's so sweet and beautiful because you're clearly getting vulnerable with, with us uh, since you've been sitting down and, and, and talking. And it, it's such a great quality for somebody to have. And it kind of breaks my heart on a certain <laughs> level that you're fighting that. Yeah. And I, and I know it's human to fight that because it feels naked, but it, it so enhances our relationship with other people and how we feel about ourselves. But you're fighting that. I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs> do you know intellectually that it's good for you to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Or I should say, do you feel intellectually that it's good for you? I think I know. I don't feel it yet. Because it's still so uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. Right. What do you feel when you're when you're when you're vulnerable and you're on the verge of tears? Anger. Yeah? Anger. Yeah. Why? Why do I have to cry? It's such a... Just, it's, why am I so angry? Yeah. So, you know, the story doesn't end there. Um, by 15, I was pregnant. Uh, my daughter was born two months after my 16th birthday. And... I say that's when I stop being a child, but my therapist disagrees. He thinks I stopped being a child long before then. So here I am at 40 with mommy issues. <laughs> I'm here at 50 with mommy issues. <laughs> who, has, who has mommy issues? Do they ever go away? Do they, do they ever? And is there ever a good mom? Because, you know, I'm quite certain that my daughter could be sitting in this very same chair. And being raised by a 16-year-old mom, it's, it's not the ideal situation. So what, she's 24 now? She's 24. Um, made me a grandmother. Really? <laughs> yeah. A grandma at 40. Right? Weird. Yeah. So... I think I mentioned in my email, every time I meet a new client and every time I hear their stories, I see the similarities and I can't help but think... The abuse in the childhood, you mean? All, all of it. The drug use, the, the abuse, the 
you know, even with some of my female clients that, you know, teenage pregnancy and running away and all of that, and what makes us different? Why, why are you on that, on that side of the glass and I'm on this side? Why? What do you, what do you, does that make you feel guilty, angry, no, bemused? No, not really. It makes me just, it's, it, it's a curiosity, I think. It's just, even in my own family, um, both my siblings are hardcore fundamentalist Christians. I mean, my sister, I, I think hers actually borders on mental illness. Um, she left her husband and her child and moved to Idaho to grow food because of the exodus that's going to happen. And, um, Christ's people are going to need to eat. And she's a prophet. At least wow. that's what she says. Um, and my brother, I mean, my brother, he's dealing with a whole lot. You know, he's, and the guy's got a, a very heavy cross to bear. And I'm really angry at my father for that. Because he never I feel like when my dad removed himself, he kind of got away with it. He didn't have to see the damage that he caused. He didn't have to, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't think about it. And that's sad to me. You know, he's never, ever, ever going to ever admit what he did. And he's never going to be punished for it. But I'd like to think in some cosmic way that, Maybe, maybe his loneliness, maybe his pathetic life somehow will make him pay. I don't know. If you see him again and you found the words to say something to him, what would you say? I know what you did. I just want him to know that I know. I know what you did. And that's probably all I would say, because I don't have anything left, you know? I wrote that off a long time ago. But it's kind of sad that it had to come back with my brother's most recent suicide attempt. That it all came back. What, what was that like for you? Um, um, I was angry, but... At him? At the universe? And my mom, um, the way it happened, my brother s still lives in Colorado, um, and I I had only known that he had attempted suicide once. I did not know there were the other times, um, and it just, it was very weird how it happened. Um, my mom happened to be telling me that she'd spoken to my brother, and he had threatened to commit suicide. He was holding a knife to his throat, and his wife left, and I was like, well, wait, he told you this? And she's like, yes. And I said, why, why didn't you do anything? Why isn't somebody getting him help? Why isn't his wife getting him help? Why isn't anybody doing anything? Well, th things are better now. <laughs> oh. Right? Things are better oh. now. <laughs> oh, okay. Because they went to dinner? Because <laughs> you know, the because, knife is back in the exactly, cabinet. Exactly, right? Okay, oh, things are better now. God. I think that's her attitude, the, the, yeah. you know, about everything. A lot of things is things are better now. Um and I said to her, 
if I ever, if I ever hear that something like this is going on, I will personally call the police and have them take him to get him help, have him held on a 5150 and get him help. And a week later, a week later, or maybe two, um, I was at home and I was getting ready to take a bath. And my mom came rushing in the house and I could tell she was panicked or in a panicked manner. And she was talking to my husband and my husband came in the bathroom and he said, your mom is on the phone with your brother and he has taken a large amount of pills and alcohol and he's telling her he wants to die. And I was like, I just remember like putting my head back and thinking, she set me up. She drove to my house and we don't live particular. We're not neighbors. You know, she drove to my house with him on the phone because she didn't want to deal with it herself. And she knew I would. And I had no choice. And I called the police in Colorado and they came and they picked him up. And he's getting therapy now. Thank God. But I was angry with my mom. You set me up. Why can't you take care of it? He's your son. You're his mother. Why do I have to always clean up your messes? She sounds like such a child, like a five-year-old. Uh, she's, she actually, my husband and I refer to her as my child. <laughs> it's just, literally, she'll call me up and ask me how to spell something. Um, you know, I had to come over to her house to help her fill out a jury summons because she didn't know how. It's not that hard. Um, my mom is a child. And my mom continues to make bad choices with men. She and my father are no longer together, but I will say that my, my stepdad is still very much part of my life. Um, he is nothing like the man that raised me. Really? Really. He went through so much therapy, years and years and years of therapy. And now, if you even mention it or he sees any sort of abuse like on television, he just cries. He can't. It's too much for him. And he apologizes every day for the, the you know the that way is he so was beautiful i think so and that's why i do believe that therapy can help people but a lot of it is wanting to be helped yeah and my dad wanted to be helped i mean he was severely abused as you mean your stepdad my stepdad yeah, yeah. he's my he, you know i've yeah, always I see. yeah um he was severely abused as a kid and uh he never dealt with those issues and you know, part of his therapy was that he actually had to move out of our house and live on his own for a year because the therapist wanted him to learn how to take care of himself. Um, and then he and my mom got back together. And now, I mean, he's amazing. How long in his getting therapy was he in it until you noticed a difference and you began to feel safe? Um, I don't know because... You were so high. I well, I left. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when I was fourteen. That's kind of like that pivotal age. It's a lot of things changed around there. I had been in treatment. I had gotten out. I had relapsed again, and I was using heavily. And I remember that sometime during that fourteen to fifteen year, um, that that year, I remember there was an incident that um, my stepdad and I got and I got into. And he had not hit anyone in probably about two, three years at this time, maybe maybe about two years. And he, but he would still have these temper tantrums, like really just angry where you thought he was going to hit somebody, but he wouldn't. Um, 
And I remember during one of those, I started hitting him. And I remember saying, just just hitting him with everything I had. And I remember him saying to my mom. What part of his body were you His hit? chest. Yeah. And he turned and he said to my mom, get her off of me or I'm going to hurt her. And I looked at him and I looked at her and I realized I'm not afraid to die. Do what you want. But I'm not afraid to die. And I was 14. And I still feel that way at 40. I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid of death. But I didn't. That was that was pretty big for me at 14. That's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Because all I thought was, death has got to be better than this. And it's got to be better. And that's how you're feeling today. You would you would welcome death. Well, I don't want to die now. I have okay. a great life now, but okay. you know, I'm not afraid of I'm I not see. afraid of death. So you're afraid of it in a different, unafraid of it in a different right. way than you were. Than I was then. You're not Absolutely. welcoming it, right? Anymore. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. I'm not welcoming it. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are the struggles these days? And and and, and am I skipping over? No, I think, well, you know, I I, I married my, uh, my daughter's father, and that was horrible. I mean, 16-year-old marriages don't really have a high success rate. Um, and then I married again when I was in my 20s, um, and I was married for 13 years, and it was really good until it wasn't. You're talking about the second marriage? Yeah. yeah. And then I recently married for the third time, and... Um, hoping how long ago um in april mm-hmm. how long were you together together before we were married yeah um six days <laughs> yeah no that was before we moved in together <laughs> but we were actually together. i left my daughter right. in a motel room <laughs> yeah Th- uh, three years three years we were together okay. and then we got married um yeah but we we moved in together really quickly literally really quickly um but so life is good now, um, but how, there are struggles. There's how were the drugs struggles. and alcohol? Um, it's interesting because I still drink. Um, and sometimes I probably drink too much. But not all the time. And I noticed that those times that I drink are when I'm in these self-destruct modes. And those are very few and far between. I think the last self-destruct mode was when I when I left my husband, my second husband, and um, that was a big. That was huge. That was hard, but it was something that had to be done. How does your How do your loved ones react when you have too much to drink? They don't like it. What do they say? How do they act? Um. They don't. They're just like you know. Um, well, I, they don't really tell me. Um, directly they'll tell each other and then it gets back to me um my girls aren't they're not afraid of me but they 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 think i don't feel right so because they're like mom mom doesn't cry mom doesn't feel and and i think when when i went through the this panic anxiety depression it really scared the shit out of them because mom was crying all the time and mom was laying on the couch all the time. Mom didn't want to leave the house. And that was really hard for them. 
And it's, it scares me that that's possible. You know, that that is actually possible. It happened. And I worry that if it happened once, could it happen again? And what will it do to them? Because I'm their wall. The walls aren't supposed to fall. And I did. How old were they when that happened? It was, they're the age they are now because it was recent. It was just the beginning of this year. Um, they are 14 and 15, the ones that are home, and then my, my daughter. Oh, okay. I thought they were out of the house. No. Okay, because they're, they're from the uh, second marriage. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We, I have a shared custody, so they're week on, week off, so I have them every other week. And during the three months that I was off, it was bad. And, I mean, everybody could see it. I lost a lot of weight. It was kind of awesome that I could fit into my skinny jeans again, but, you know, <laughs> not that way. <laughs> Isn't it funny where sometimes uh, at our skinniest when we're at our the closest to, to death? Right. I think it's just reflective of whittling away piece by piece. I remember my wife had a part, birthday party for me. I think it was... I think it was my 37th birthday and everybody was telling me how good I looked and I was thinking about suicide about a hundred times a day and I couldn't wait for the party to be over so everybody could leave and I remember opening presents and just thinking you've got to smile harder they can see they can see yeah smile 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 <laughs> so what are the what have you what ground have, do you feel like you've gained in in therapy? Are you pretty new to, to, to therapy? No, um, actually, I started therapy um, when I met my husband, my, my husband now. Um, he... So what's that, about three years ago? Yeah. He, um, he was in therapy, and we thought that it would be a good idea to start going to therapy before things get shitty and broken rather than wait until they're shitty and broken and then go to therapy. We thought, hey, let's try something new and like try and make a relationship work because we both have been married twice before. Um, and, you know, we just thought, if we're going to do this, let's just try and do it the right way. That's so awesome. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's not easy. Oh, no. Know. Oh, it's no, certainly it's not, not easy. It's, it's not. not been, you know. All rainbows and sprinkles. <laughs> I, you know, I think the the thing that I'd, I'd like to encourage people to who are new to therapy or are considering going to therapy is spill it all, collapse, yeah, be, be a mess. That's the place to be a mess. Absolutely, and I, I'm really fortunate that my therapist is truly amazing. Um, I think what it is for me is I'm very. I'm very realistic about things. And I'd rather you tell me, just say it, right? Put it all on the table. I don't offend easily. And in fact, very little offends me. Look at what I do. Um, and he read me. From the minute I walked in, he called me on my bullshit. And I, I respected that. And I felt like, okay, I can talk to you. Because... Did you know. he do it in a way that had some love and diplomacy in it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. I think that's really important that oh, you weren't shamed. Just, I mean, honestly, I have to give him all the credit for the success of the relationship that I'm in because I don't know that we would have made it without him initially before we were married. I mean, it wasn't, you know, even in the beginning, 
there were problems. And we worked through that. And still working through that. I think every marriage could benefit from counseling, is it either for a crisis, getting through a crisis, or just for a tune-up. Sometimes you need that that third Absolutely. point of view. Yeah, and and I think the the thing my my therapist has done for me that's just been really really helpful in 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 healing and dealing with things is just getting me to recognize that we're all light and shadows. That's how he refers to it. And we just have to love both parts and, and realize they're both there. My therapist says the same really? thing. <laughs> Does he say uh, ghost and echoes too? Because I get no. ghost and echoes. Those are just ghost and echoes. It's not real. All that no. stuff you're making up, it's in your head. <laughs> she she does uh, reference, um, oh, what's the word? What do they call it? Um, um, like a classic uh, image, arch- arch- archetypes. She she talks about archetypes a lot. Um, and sometimes I'll tell her that that gets on my nerves. And, I, <laughs> and, I, uh, and that's the thing that I, that I also recommend is, you know, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, this is horse shit, I don't like the words you're using, um, you don't have to say, you know, this is horse shit, I don't like the words you're using. You can say, what I do is is I say um, I'm struggling right now. There's a part of my brain that is saying this is horse shit. This is a waste of time, um, etc. And and I know it's important for me to share that with you. It's hard for me to say that, but I know it's important for me to say that. And then we'll grab that and we'll go with that for a while. And uh, and you're the good guy. You're the consummate good guy. You want to make everyone feel good. And I don't want to. You know, I'm not going to tell you anything that that might hurt you because. I don't want to hurt anybody, right? That's- yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought you were talking about me. Yeah. yeah my no, therapist yes. is female, so yeah. No, I, I, you don't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> yes. No, I don't. I don't. And uh, too too much of a of a degree, um, you know, with my constantly apologizing by thinking that somebody listening to the podcast, you know, might might be offended by the way something is phrased or somebody saying something. But somebody will be because. I know. That's oh, I how people emails. are. <laughs> they are. <laughs> you and, can't, and you can't mo- please everyone. <laughs> no, and and I try to say, is there constructive criticism in here? Uh, I'll reflect for a moment, and I try to take what's constructive in it. And but there are many where I say, you know, this person's got issues, and I'm just the person that they're blaming for today, and I'm not going to let it bother me. So I'm um, I'm getting better at that, but it is a it is a work in in progress. Um, but let's get back to, to where you feel like you are today. What are the issues? What parts of yourself do you, would you like to change? Or are you tired of hiding from other people? What parts of me would I like to change? I'd like to be more motivated. I'd like to follow through. Um, I think that sometimes I get really lazy. And I just say, I don't want to deal with that. I'm not going to deal with that. We'll do it that later. Um, is it possible that 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 is a component of a, a depression that might be there? I think it could be. It's fear of failing. Feel fear of uh, screwing up somehow. Not doing it right. Not being good enough. I think that's what it is. You know, I have... Right now, I feel like I'm at a really good point in my life. I have a great, I have a great husband. I have a great family. I have wonderful friends, 
And sometimes when I'm sitting there among all of them, I think, I don't belong here. What do I have to contribute to this? I mean, you're a geneticist and you're a philosophy professor and you're an attorney. And what do, what do, what do I have that's of any value to, to this relationship, whether it's an intimate or a friend or, you know, what, what, what is it you're getting from me? And I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> but they still keep calling. So I must be doing something right. So I think... You're so hard on yourself. Uh, who isn't? <laughs> we are our I worst am, enemies. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, I think I am pretty hard on myself. But... um. I don't think it's something I can change, really. You can. I can I can guarantee you it can change. It can't disappear overnight. You know, part of, of going to therapy, one of my fears about going to therapy was that it's going to change me. It's going to change. It's it's going to make me weak. And That's I don't want to be weak. That's such a myth. It it strips away the stuff that weakens us. And it leaves, I'm that. it leaves what is essential, what is natural to us, and what is strong, what was there as, as when we were children before, you know, we right. experienced the stuff that... I've always been the fighter, the one who trudges on. You know, I, I, I had a kid at, at 16, and I dropped out of high school in the 10th grade, but I knew that I had to do something more because I just couldn't be that teenage mom statistic. So I went to school and I got my degree and then I got another degree and, you know, and I just, um, I kept moving on because that's what you do. You have to just pick yourself up and keep moving on. And I, I was afraid that therapy would take that from me, that somehow it would change me. It would make me soft and mushy and, syrupy like my yeah. mom <laughs> you know let's talk about feelings mm, no let's not talk about feelings <laughs> well it sounds like you know y your mom wanted to talk about feelings as long as they fit into a a very narrow idea as long as they didn't threat threaten her right. existence yeah is that is that i think that's off pretty, base or no, is that i think that's that's pretty accurate so in many ways that's a smoke screen for feigning intimacy you know my mom is the first person will say you need therapy you need to go to therapy you should try therapy and she's <laughs> mom <Yeah. laughs> maybe you should go to therapy <laughs> yeah yeah do you is there anything else you want to touch on before we do uh do some fears and loves i think that's it i mean you know who couldn't write a book i know but uh <laughs> It's always it's uh, it's been written. Do you um did you bring some fears with you? I did. I did bring some fears with me. Not as many as you'd ask for. No, that's okay. <laughs> It'd be fine if we only had uh, you know, two or three. Okay. I didn't bring any, so I'm just going to riff some. Oh, fears. Okay. 
I fear that I will never be motivated enough to take the comp exam for my master's program. And $40,000 in two years of coursework will be completely wasted. What is your degree in? Which one? Uh, my master's is public administration. Yeah. yeah. Um, I am afraid that because I was sexually abused as a child and I talk about uh, pedophilia and have compassion for people who struggle with that, that people think that I've molested uh, children or I'm going to molest children. I fear that I will become boring and afraid to try new things. I am afraid that I'm fooling myself thinking that I'm going to lose weight and that I'm just really going to just keep getting fatter and fatter and justifying it and, and continue to looting myself and never getting to a place where I either am going to lose the weight or I'm going to be decide to be happy with how I am physically. Which is very close to, I fear that even my fat clothes won't fit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yeah. kind of where I am yeah. right now. I'm at the limit of my fat pants. I'm like, these are the fat pants yeah. and I can't button them. <laughs> yeah. um, my turn? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid that the pain I've been getting in my lower back is either uh, cancer or a disc that is going to give out and I'm going to have to get surgery and I'll have to take pain pills and I'm going to, they're going to become so delicious that I will lose my sobriety and never become sober again and die a tragic, pathetic death. Well, don't Google back pain because <laughs> then you might have cancer. <laughs> Um, I fear that I'm not good at anything. I don't make anything, and I don't have any particular talents. I am afraid that my joy for the things that the the things that bring me joy um, are just going to slowly but surely wear away until there's nothing that brings me joy or pleasure anymore. I fear that I will forget to unplug my flat iron and my house will burn down and my homeowner's insurance won't cover that. <laughs> I'm afraid that I will never play guitar with passion again. I'm afraid that I will never escape the walls of my surmounting debt. I don't have any more either. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's, let's go to uh, loves. Oh, okay, loves. I love the complete feeling of elation and almost ecstasy when I'm able to pee after holding it in for several hours. <laughs> that is good. I love when I pee and a shiver goes down my spine. Yeah. Do, do women get that? No, my eyes just roll the back of my head. <laughs> and I'm happy. I am happy yeah. in that moment. I know guys get that where a shiver will, will go down your spine and there's like a reflexive... Um, shaking and and then sometimes i'll like spray like spray pee and be like that's all right the, the shiver was worth it was it. worth it yeah, yeah i suppose that could be tied into a fear of mine which is i fear that one day i won't make it to the bathroom <laughs> okay um i love the, um the warmth of my husband's chest against my cheek every night as i fall asleep oh that's sweet 
Uh, I love the piece of furniture that I'm working on right now that um, has wood from the tree that used to be our front yard and that I have many more slabs of it and that it's just going to get turned into cool furniture. (laughs) I love when I'm able to call a penalty before the ref does during a football game. (laughs) That's awesome. That is good. That is good. I, I, I don't usually get that when I'm watching football, but I get that when I'm playing uh, or watching hockey. <laughs> I do love that feeling. Um, I love how hard uh, Jonathan Taze, he's a, a hockey player for the Chicago Blackhawks, I love how hard he plays, how competitive he is how smart he is, how hard he works in the corners, and what a great leader he is. I just love that he is the cap. I get to have him as the captain on my favorite hockey team. That's awesome. I love Sunday mornings. Everyone's still asleep. I have my crossword puzzle, my coffee, and Sinatra. <laughs> nice. Do you have a favorite Sinatra song? Um, it has to probably be From This Moment On because that's my husband's my song. I think my favorite song of his is his live version of Get Me to the Church on Time. And there's this moment in it where he sings the the line ding dong, but he holds it out for like 10 seconds. He holds the word ding out for like five or 10 seconds and he does it with such swing to it. It's just the like if you were to pick a moment from the 60s. You know, from those those guys, the the Rat Pack from yeah. the '60s. It to me is like it that cool all boiled down into a five second chunk. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, that is good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. Aside from all the shit in his life, that, <laughs> where he was a dick, and you know, well, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> look that he's got yeah. a voice. Um, speaking of which, I love when I hit the right note when I'm car singing. That's the only time I sing is in the car. (laughs) Um, I love coming up with something on the guitar that I don't even know if they're actual chords or not, but it sounds cool, and I feel like I've created something out of my soul. I love the way a pair of shoes can make an outfit. (laughs) (laughs) The right pair of shoes. Unfortunately, they're usually the most expensive pair of shoes. I don't think we've ever gotten that one on this <laughs> on the show before, and I'm kind of surprised, um, especially with how many uh, how many female listeners uh, we have. Because I know, uh, you know, men love shoes, but women really seem to love shoes oh, a, a little bit amazing. more. Um, is that your last love? That's my last one. Well, Renee, thank you so much for coming and sharing your uh, your life and your story with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was great. Many, many thanks to uh, to Renee. Um, before I take it out with, uh, with some surveys, uh, I want to give some love to a, a new sponsor of ours, uh, Zola. Uh, Zola is a one-stop wedding registry. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, sometimes you'll be going to a wedding and People will say, I'm registered at this site and this site and this site. And you go to the first site and the only thing available to buy for them is a a fork. And then you go to the next site and the only thing available uh, is a jacuzzi with a waterfall. Uh, Well, Zola is uh, a great one-stop way 
to buy stuff for people that are registered for their wedding. They work with 450-plus brands, so uh, they can find whatever they want in one place. Brands like KitchenAid, SoulCycle, La Crescette, Sonos, Ralph Lauren. Um, it's the highest-rated registry app on iPhone, iPad, and uh, even Apple Watch uh, to register on the go. Couples can have gift gifts uh, shipped now, later, or exchange them for something else. Um, you can do group gifting. Multiple guests can contribute to bigger ticket gifts. Gifts. Uh, Zola offers price matching to make gift giving easier uh, for your guests. And uh, couples will receive 10% off the entire site for a year to complete their registry. So, Zola, the wedding registry that will do anything for love. All the gifts, experiences, and funds you want all in one place. Listeners receive $50 off when you register and use Zola. Visit Zola.com slash mental for details. That's Z-O-L-A dot com slash mental. Uh, all right. Actually, before I read uh, the surveys, I want to remind you guys that there's a couple of different ways um, to support the show financially if you feel so inclined. Um, you can go to our website, metalpod.com, and you can make a one-time PayPal uh, donation or a recurring monthly donation um, for as little as five bucks a month. You can go to Patreon, which actually I prefer. If you're going to do a recurring monthly donation, uh, Patreon is better, uh, not only for us, but for you, because I can give you little uh, gifts uh, on, on Patreon for uh, being a donor. And you can start at uh, as little as a dollar a month on Patreon. And that, um, I'll put the link up on this site, but it's uh, patreon.com slash mental and, uh, or is it mental pod? Yeah, it's slash mental pod. And it's um, Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Um, also, go to iTunes. Give us a, a nice review and uh, give us a good rating if you uh, feel that that's honest. That would that helps. And spread the word about the podcast through social media. All of those things really, really help. Uh, you know, the, this podcast is the only thing I do. It's my only source of um, uh, income, and uh, it, it always needs more money. It always needs more money. So, I, you know, I apologize if uh, I'm coming across as constantly um, begging for money, um, but ads alone aren't aren't going to cut it uh, on the on the show. So now I'm totally in my head that uh, A, I talk too much about money uh, on this, and B, I apologized for talking about money. I guess I got my bases covered. So if you hate me, uh, for talking about money, uh, I beat you to it. And if you think I'm beating myself too much, uh, beating myself up too much, I beat you to that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Grumpy Hedgehog. And she writes about her depression, uh, which is bipolar too. Never knowing if you found a new hobby or if it's just hypomania. That is so fantastic. That is so fucking fantastic. Oh my God, do I relate to that one? Uh, the failing perfectionist is a redundant name, um, deals with depression, anxiety, and OCD, and uh, she gives us a, a snapshot from her life. Uh, frozen. I can't complete anything, so I just do 10 things at a time, 10 dishes. 
then fold ten pieces of clothing, put away ten toys until I have gone through each room of the house, read ten pages of my book as a reward, and start over. Nothing is truly ever clean or completed. Thank you for that. Netflix and Couch Queen shares an awfulsome moment. Um, and by the way, uh, go fill out uh, awfulsome moments and happy moments um, if you if you haven't yet. Uh, we always could use uh, more of those. Uh, I think there's about ten different surveys you guys can take on the uh, on the website. Uh, let's see her awfulsome moment. I'm a 26-year-old college dropout because I can no longer afford college and have to start paying back my student loans. I work full-time taking care of babies, which is the only thing that keeps me sane, but also drives me insane at the same time. It makes no sense, but that's how I feel. I've been battling anxiety, panic attacks, and severe depression. I haven't told my family that I had to drop out of school because they'll be disappointed in me and I can't handle that weight. Occasionally, I have suicidal ideation that I drive my car off of the bridge of the interstate in the middle of the night when no one is on the road. I've never attempted it. I just imagined it. One night, I kept having these thoughts, so I decided to watch The Office to try to laugh off the ideation. Ironically, it was the episode where Steve Carell's character, character Michael Scott, decides to try to fake a suicide to get his co-workers to feel sorry for teasing him. I split a gut laughing. Now whenever I drive on a highway bridge, I think of Steve Carell trying to jump off a building onto an inflatable bouncy house, and I laugh. Man, nothing nothing helps dispel the darkness like laughing. Um, this is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by... Uh, person who calls, uh, she calls herself A. And let's see, she is, she's gay. She is 16. She was raised, is being raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Um, she checked off, uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I would walk in on my dad standing in his room changing, often completely naked with the door wide open, uh, and I felt extremely uncomfortable and guilty. One time I was six to eight years old and, my, and told my mom that after showering I left conditioner in my hair. She was busy and told me to ask my dad to get it out for me. When I did, he closed the bathroom door and told me to take my shirt off, commanding me to do so in a way that made me feel extremely afraid. He was... He has always had anger issues that frightened me my whole childhood. His anger at this moment put me uh, into a state of fear and vulnerability that I often come back to. He yelled the whole time and had me lean backwards, shirtless, into the sink where he could wash my hair. I couldn't move and remember wishing he had just put the towel around me. He got very angry at me for crying and feeling uncomfortable. I think of it now and I remember how since that moment... I never wanted him to kiss me goodnight or be alone with me ever again. My mom also did some pretty questionable things. I remember he, uh, she was going to the bathroom in front of me while I was little, showing me her vagina or letting me watch her shower. And when she washed me in the shower, I was always extremely uncomfortable when she would use the washcloth to rub my vagina, extremely rough in a way that always made me feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, it, it, as I say all the time on the podcast, um, it, how you would classify something 
is not as important as the feelings that are left in their wake. And a lot of feelings have been left in the wake of this. And in, as I read this, there's a lot of red flags in here, but um, I would definitely talk to a counselor or a therapist about this. And, you know, you're 16. Um, uh, if you don't want to talk to somebody about this, um, hang in there. You only have two more years left under their roof, hopefully. Um, and... You know, sending you some love, man. I'm sending you some love, eh? Um, you're not alone. You're not alone. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself, I called my mom a cunt on Christmas. I think Bing Crosby was the first one to sing that song. About his anxiety, I have plenty of money, but calling to pay this bill will literally kill me. Uh, about his love addiction, I said I'd stop dating heartless women, but this one is so hot. Thank you, man. Thank you for that. Rogue, who is agender, shares about their gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is hearing all the hateful things people whisper to each other or outright yell at me because of how I look but judging them for being unoriginal, having said worse to myself multiple times a day. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Awfulsome moment from horny in Canada. Isn't everyone horny in Canada? That's why you, that's why you play hockey. You get out in the cold, pulls the balls up a little bit. Um... Let's see. She writes, I don't usually make New Year's resolutions, but this year I do have two goals, to stay more present in my body and to model what I need from others by speaking more emphatically. I only recently got a real taste of what that is like and what a difference it can make and have been trying really hard to find opportunities to practice it. I've been playing in a band for a short time and so don't know the other people really well. One of them a private music teacher, has been talking about an adult student of his who died a couple of months ago. He recently found out that when the man had the massive heart attack that killed him, he was sitting in a chair in front of a music stand with a piece of music this teacher had given him at his last lesson. Did I say, that must have been hard to hear, or even something pithy like, at least he died doing something he loved? No. What fell out of my mouth was, has it occurred to you that maybe that piece of music was just too hard for him? I'm curious if you were doing that to be to be funny, in which case I don't think that that was, well, I guess it would depend on your relationship with that person. Anyway, we are not judging you. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by who the hell am I? She is gay in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, um, never been sexually abused, but she's been emotionally abused. I have a narcissistic mother who verbally abuses me. One day, she's taking me out to lunch, and the next, she's saying that our family makes her want to kill herself. She makes me call her every day and, cry, and cries when I don't call. 
when I do call, we don't talk about anything important. Everything I say will be used against me. I walk on eggshells all the time. Being exposed to this type of behavior as a child has fucked me up in the worst way. I have codependent tendencies and zero coping skills. I hate her because she made me this way. I hate her because she made me hate myself. Any positive experiences with her? Yes, my mother loves me, but she herself is mentally ill. That's why this is so damn difficult. Darkest thoughts. I've been in a relationship for three years, but I think it's coming to an end. I'm terrified I won't be able to mentally handle life without her. In parentheses, I'm a lesbian. I literally have no one. I'm terrified I'll kill myself. I think about this every day. So much so, I usually vomit. Darkest secrets. When I get overwhelmed, I punch myself and pull out my hair. I'm so embarrassed by this. I feel like a worthless piece of shit. You are so so not a worthless piece of shit. You are a sensitive human being whose needs were completely and are completely being ignored by your caregiver. And what human being wouldn't react in a way that on the surface you would say, yeah, that's abnormal. No, you're a a, a quote-unquote normal person who was raised in an abnormal environment. And it's time to stop shaming yourself and and to get help. Um, because if you don't get help, you are going to remain in that victim state. And I can tell you, it is a terrible place to be. I've been in there where I wasn't getting help for myself. And I just stewed in self-pity and anger. And it's... It's, it's a prison. It's a prison. So yeah, your mom did fuck you up, but now the ball is in your court to set boundaries and to decide to get help and take ownership of your story and your issues. And you can, you can process them and heal. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have rape and extreme bondage fantasies. I can't shake them. I'm so ashamed of this. This is one of my deepest secrets. Why why shake them? If if you're not violating somebody else, if it's a willing partner, I'd say find a consenting partner where hopefully it's not a, a, a compulsive thing uh, that's degrading your lives and maybe experiment with it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my mom how I really feel instead of lying to make her happy. I wish I could open up to her. I wish I could tell her all the things that have hurt me the most, and I wish she would listen and apologize. Well, you know, if she's a narcissist, there's a good chance that's never going to happen, and you might drive yourself crazy trying to get, uh, as they say, water from that rock. Um What, if anything, you wish for? I wish for community and support. Oh, man, there is so much community and support. If you put the energy out to look, you will find love and support out there. You know, it may not come immediately. It probably won't come in the form that your brain anticipates it coming in. But if you're open-minded and you just keep trying to heal, and reaching out for help, that the universe will meet you halfway. That I do know. That I do know. And don't give up. Don't give up. 
and they can help you, a good support group can help you find ways to talk to that person who is abusive to you or, you know, distance yourself or even cut contact from them. Izzy shares about her anxiety. Maybe if I keep thinking about all the things that could kill me, they won't. That one is beautifully simple and pithy. Although is simple part of being pithy? I think it is. Ooh, that was redundant. And I repeated myself. Shan shares about their depression. Uh, like being empty. Like someone took an ice cream scoop to the parts of me that feel emotions. Numb. Man. That is so dead on. And for me, it always feels like it's it scoops out my chest. Trebek, who is agender, uh, oh, and uh, she prefers uh, she and her pronouns, shares an awfulsome moment. My older brother recently admitted to himself and our parents and me that he is struggling with depression. He was in crisis, so I went to visit him, having spent 10 years firmly rooted in my own depression and hoping to help him or at least be there for him. Before I went to see my brother, I was talking to our parents on the phone about my concerns and trying to help them understand his feelings. As I talked to them and told them that I was so proud of my brother for reaching out and how they needed to just support him and not judge, it became clear that they were taking his depression seriously, something they never did for me at 15 when I tried to reach out. As I stood in my kitchen, happy that my brother would have support that I never did, I was hit by a sick, intense jealousy. When I told my brother this, I cried. He hugged me. He apologized for our parents. He will never have to feel the isolation and dismissal I did. I'm glad, but I'm still jealous. I can't help but think I would be less broken if one of my parents had supported me like this. Thank you. That's so beautiful. And my thought when I read that is, but you wouldn't be able to help as many people who have felt that isolation. You would be less useful to people in pain in the universe if you hadn't felt that, that other thing. Is that me, you know, being a dicky, silver lining guy? Maybe, but I think that's the truth. And by the way, if you want to see me perform as dicky, silver lining guy, I'll be at uh, the Oxnard Playhouse uh, Sunday, July, I don't know, I ran out of, I ran out of steam. Uh, and there will be a Sunday matinee where I perform as Little Dicky. uh, I forgot the name, Little Dicky, uh, sil- Silver Lining. Uh, oh, somebody had asked, um, that wanted me to share my story on the podcast. Well, first of all, it's kind of spread through uh, a variety of episodes, but if you really kind of want to hear it in one place, there is an episode where I'm interviewed, and I think it was two years ago, and it's called Paul Gets Interviewed. Uh, so if you want to know why I am the basket case I am, uh, go listen to that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by confused by all the attention. I thought it was love. He is straight in his 50s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, a female teacher in fifth grade showed me how to French kiss. 
A female babysitter around the same time wanted me to play with her vagina and fuck her with my prepubescent dick. A male adult who took me camping and uh, sucked my dick. It was very painful, and he made me rub his dick. I would not blow him. I think most of the things happened around fifth grade. He's also been physically and emotionally abused, uh, neglected by my mother. Uh, My dad was my drinking buddy. Any positive experiences with these abusers? Yes, I have positive experiences with my parents, only that she, my mother, is in denial. My father died 20 years ago. I cut off talking with my mom. Uh, She is forgiven by Jesus. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what he means by that. Darkest thoughts, hurting people who sexually abuse kids. Darkest secrets. I was in high school and confused about my sexuality and tried to have sex with a friend. Uh, I felt like I tried to rape him. It's my last amends and I can't find him. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I have many sexual fantasies. Some are with women older, some are younger, and receiving anal from a male. I feel like they are only fantasies. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my friend uh, I was sorry, um, I was drunk and confused, and it was all me and my sick mind at the time. What, if anything, do you wish for? That my mother would own up to her mental health issues and make amends. Um, I think he said his mom is a narcissist. Is that what he said? I can't remember. Maybe I'm thinking of another one. Yeah. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, with my support group sponsor. Uh, I've been sober almost 30 years, but recently started working on outside issues. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel great and can't wait to grow even more emotionally. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? And then he has this in all caps. Just tell someone about your pain. Right on, man. Thank you for that. That's some fucking great recovery right there. Big Toe shares about his sex addiction. Uh, You porn is my kind of speed dating. (laughs) It's genius. You are my new best friend. (laughs) Oh, buddy. Thank you for that. That, yeah. Atomic Cowgirl shares about her ADD. Like the universe isn't large enough to print out the single run-on sentence actively occurring in my brain. A snapshot from her life. And she also has anxiety, um, which she calls ADHD's unhappy bed partner. <laughs> Uh, snapshot from her life. Thanks to those rank little assholes who stood on the toilets in the neighboring stalls to watch and laugh at me when I was in the second grade. I'm a fucking 51-year-old adult who still can't take a crap in a public bathroom. I know a lot of people that have that. Uh, Keep Frozen shares about her depression. I don't know if I'm actually depressed or if I'm realistic. Oh, my God, that one, when I read it, was like, you have just summed up my 
most common thought of the last 25 years. Thank you for that. And I can tell you now that I found medication that really works, I was actually depressed. You like how I made that all about me? I'm a magician. <laughs> I could take anything, put it into a hat, pull it out, and it's about me. <laughs> You've got cancer? Hold on, let me put it let me put it in the hat. I pull it out. I once injured my knee. That's actually not too far from the truth. Uh, I one time realized that I had just complained to somebody who was dying of AIDS that my knee was creaky. Yeah. That's a hard one to say out loud. This was back before AIDS medicines got, uh, or HIV medicines got good. Um Gemma submitted an awfulsome moment. I left my residential treatment center for the psych ward when I was a youngin. In group, you had to explain why you were there. I didn't particularly want to say that I was there for a self-harm episode, so I quoted a popular song from the radio. I only came here for two reasons. I can't lie. The ladies and the drinks. Didn't go over too well with the staff, but it made the fact that I was in a hospital gown with my ass exposed much easier to deal with. Thank you for that. Anything that involves an ass hanging out of a hospital gown is good by me. Uh, usual statistic shares an awful some moment. Uh, oh, this one is not. There, there's nothing. Uh, you know, I try to pick awful some moments that have something that's kind of uh, funny about it or something beautiful about it. And this one, uh, it, there's nothing funny or beautiful uh, about this except her, her vulnerability. Um, but I wanted to read it because I think it's so important. Sitting on the exam table in the ER with only the thin paper of a gown between me and the cold metal. I'm here because last night I was raped by a stranger. The detective sitting across from me is female. She's small and has a thick, dark ponytail. She puts her hand on my bruised thigh and tells me, I think you should chalk this up to a lesson learned. It's her way of convincing me not to go forward with a rape kit because, quote, it happens all the time. She's seen it a million times. It's been four years now, and I still can't figure out what lesson I was supposed to learn. First of all, I am so sorry on behalf of humanity that that is the comfort and support that you were given at such a horrible, horrible time. Um, it, how is there not some type of standard sensitivity training that law enforcement people have? You know, I'm sure that this detective is not a mean person. I'm sure this comes from a place of either ignorance or discomfort with um, intense emotions, but that person should not be the one who's there. I mean, seriously, that's like, that's like, she might as well have said shit happens. That's, I'm so sorry that that, that you had to experience that. And I hope that you have found compassion, uh, support, and comfort since then. 
and to anybody who's ever experienced um, sexual violation at any time in their lives, um, if you're looking for support or resources, go to the Rape and Incest National Network. It's R-A-I-N-N dot org. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by My Socks Are Cooler Than Yours. She is uh, 18. She's queer, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, she's not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Um My parents would constantly use me and my sister as in-betweeners, having screaming matches in front of us every time we had dinner, sat down to watch telly, went on a car trip, were just laying around at home. Um, Yeah, that's emotional abuse. There's no two ways about it. I can only gulp down food because I got so used to wanting to finish my meal as quickly as possible, and I get panicky at the thought of long car trips with more than one person at a time. My dad used to criticize my body every chance he got. That is so, that is so abusive. Every meal was a chance to comment on how much I ate when I developed a very obvious eating disorder. He would just continue to criticize the fact that I used, used to eat none of my dinner and then would eat several pieces of fruit at night as they had, quote, high sugar content. When I once asked him to stop, as I thought he had no right, as it is my body, he responded with, I helped make you. It's partially my body, too. That made me so fucking angry when I read that. Oh, my God, that makes me fucking angry. It is not your body, too. You fucking narcissist. Oh, I want to punch him in the fucking face. No, this isn't tapping into into any of my parental issues. Oh, my God. Darkest thoughts. I like to imagine slowly killing people. I have a weird fascination with death and the macabre. A daydream about how people must die differently and if there are different things that come with it or if it is just the same large feeling. Strangulation. Peeling off skin, slowly drowning over a matter of days. That's just a few of my daydreams, but I'd never act on them because I'd have to deal with their bodies and I don't want to go to jail. Side note, I could never harm an animal, only people. I think a lot of us are that way. Um, Well, let's put it this way. For me, harming an animal is off the table. I'd like to think that I could never harm an adult? What am I talking about? I've punched people. <laughs> I'm such a dick. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have a fantasy of a daddy and little girl relationship. I listen to a lot of audio stuff and I love it best when they berate and demand and only focus on themselves. I've never shared that with anyone and I'm worried it makes me a freak or a hypocrite because I'm very much the feminist of my group and I constantly speak up against sexist language and boys demeaning girls and yet that's exactly what I'm into. You should read the book called, uh, I think it's called The Sexual Mind or The Erotic Mind by Jack Morin and it is exactly why we sometimes fantasize about things that are morally uh, uh, repulsive to us is it's it it is not a comment on your morality it's often your brain's way of coping 
with past trauma or pain or anxiety. So don't judge yourself. Don't judge yourself. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to say to my family that I love them, but I need space, and that just because I have space for one more doesn't mean I always want them visiting. I also want to tell my dad I think he might have narcissistic personality disorder. Um, I hope you can find the strength to say that to your family because you deserve to do that. Um, my wife was very good um, at telling people, um, oh, you want to visit? Okay, uh, but you're going to have to get a hotel and unapologetic uh, about it. And that helped me to be able to do it. And it gets easier. Setting boundaries with people gets easier. Stating your need, your needs gets easier. Um, and as far as telling your dad that he might have narcissistic personality disorder, <laughs> good luck. I don't know if a narcissist, there are narcissistic people and then there's people with narcissistic personality disorder. And there's a, a big difference between the two because people with narcissistic tendencies can often see that they have narcissistic tendencies. But somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, I don't believe. And pretty much every therapist I've ever talked to has never met anyone with that disorder who admits that they have the, that disorder or th- believes they have that disorder. Um, this is an email I got from Fred Kofi, and he writes, Dear, I am Barrister Fred Kofi. Um, I don't know what a barrister is exactly, but I think in England you're licensed to sue anyone from the gong show. Um, I'm contacting you for the claim of my late client funds, $1.7 million, that was deposited with the bank here in Lome, Togo, who involved in a ghastly motor accident with his family. Um, I mean, that must have been ghastly, to crash into your own family. I can't imagine the guilt and what that driveway looked like. I've got to imagine it was a circular driveway. That would be the most common way to be involved in a ghastly motor accident with your family. Um, Fred continues, I decided to contact you as a matter of urgency regarding this issue. I want to present you to the bank as the living next of kin so that the fund will be released to you before it gets confiscated and transfer into government account. Um Well, I would agree about you wanting to present me to the bank as the living next of kin. I am definitely, if you're going to present me as next of kin, I definitely vote for living next of kin. But I don't know what's involved in presenting me to the bank. What am I going to have to wear? Am I going to have to rent a top hat? Tails. I mean, we're talking England. Am I going to have to hold one of those things, you know, that little perch that the single egg gets cracked on for breakfast? Who's going to walk me down the aisle to the teller at the bank? I got a lot of questions, Fred. I wait to hear from you for more details and clarification. Yours faithfully, Fred, and in the parentheses, ESQ. 
I, I am so touched that Fred signed it yours faithfully. I take a certain comfort in knowing that Fred has never cheated on me. And yeah, you could say, Paul, but you've only known him for a paragraph. But if you were here, you could see what a sincere font he has chosen. I'll, I'll, I'll keep you guys posted on any breaking news. And speaking of England, um, I think I told you guys a couple of episodes ago, I am planning to uh, make a trip to Europe to record non-American listeners. Um, I'm going to uh, London, hopefully to Liverpool, uh, then to Ireland and Berlin, and I might try to squeeze in one or two more um, cities. And I have some some people lined up to interview already, but um, if you have a story and you're in Europe and um, you want to pitch it, um, shoot me an email. Try to keep it broad strokes, maximum of like two paragraphs. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm asking you to minimize your pain, your life and all its meaning into two paragraphs because I have a short attention span. Dr. Loser shares about uh, her alcoholism and drug addiction. Um, I drink at night because I think I deserve it. Every morning I realize I was just punishing myself. I might as well have punched myself in the face. I deserve it. Um, About her codependency. Uh, I have a PhD, but I'm the stupid girl who asks, are you mad at me 9,000 times until my husband is, in fact, mad at me? You know, I wanted to say something about the the drinking. Um, you know, I, I haven't had a drink or a recreational drug in, in, um, in 13 years. And the longer I'm sober, um, the, in getting sober, the thing that shocked me the most that I couldn't see before I got help was it's not about trying to control our drinking. If you're an alcoholic, you have forever lost the ability to drink in moderation or to use drugs in moderation, you know, drugs that bring euphoria. Um, By getting help, what you will learn is how to manage the feelings that are underneath the desire to drink. That's where we learn coping skills, where, you know, we form bonds with safe people. We help others and increase our self-esteem. You know, trying to deal with alcoholism by focusing on the act of drinking is like trying to put out a fire by blowing at the smoke, you know. Drinking is alcoholism's smoke. Alcoholism's fire is selfishness, fear, resentment, and a lack of coping tools for emotions. That's been my experience. And then uh, this is a, this is another survey that that uh, struggle in a sentence. Um, and Captain Bullshit shares a snapshot of her alcoholism. The other day I bought myself a 750 milliliter bottle of vodka and drank huge amounts of it in one evening. 
This isn't unusual for me, but the next morning was different than most other mornings. Normally, I would have looked at the bottle of vodka and thought to myself, holy shit, you drank that much and you're not dead? You're a talented drinker. Instead, I looked at the bottle and saw how much I drank and I said to myself, this is really bad. You are not okay. Later on, I decided to take a shower so that I could appear normal by the time my roommate came home from work. After my shower, I stood in front of the mirror naked. As I was standing there, I heard my stomach and other organs growl in distress, and I began to apologize to my organs. I'm sorry I hurt you again. After that, I lost my shit and broke down crying, continuing to apologize amid my tears. I can't stop, I whispered to my tearful self. That morning marked the moment when I first realized, realized that I have a very real drinking problem. I've told people that I drink too much before that experience occurred, but I've never actually cared enough about myself to take my alcohol problem seriously until that moment. I need help, but I'm afraid to ask for it. I am so happy that I got to read your survey, and I really hope that you get to hear this episode because you have described the exact feeling that I experienced the day I finally got up the courage to ask for help. And I understand that fear of asking for help, whether it's for alcoholism or depression or whatever the struggle is. And the thing I learned after I got help was that my crystal ball is fucking broken. I had anticipated what I thought help was going to look like. I thought it was going to be humorless. I thought it was going to be constantly mundane. I thought there would be no joy. All it would be was all my misery, but without the euphoria of drinking. And I was so wrong. You know, the universe it has all this energy waiting to help you, but we have to meet it halfway. And seeing that you are in the midst of untreated alcoholism, but afraid to ask for help is, I'm going to use this fire metaphor uh, again or analogy, but it's like you're on fire and you are trying like hell to keep your finger jammed into the end of a hose because you're afraid of what's in the hose. Worry about the fire. That's that's what you should be afraid of, is how to put out that fire, not the hose. But the way alcoholism and drug addiction work is it tells you the hose is, is scary. Trust me. Your crystal ball is broken. Surrender. Let the universe love you through other people who've been there and know what those tools are to cope. And let them love you by sharing those tools with you. Let them love you by getting to know you. Let them love you by hearing your pain. Let them love you by letting them share their story so that you can see not only see that you're not alone, but feel that you're not alone. That's when I really bought into recovery, was when I felt that I wasn't alone. And I could feel that fire die down. 
and you know, alcoholism and drug addiction, it's it never goes out completely, but it can go down to a little ember. And then the maintenance is just making sure that you don't feed it gasoline or oxygen or, you know, whatever it is that makes it turn into a raging fire again. I'm already hating myself for all of the uh, fire uh, analogies and metaphors. I also hate myself for not knowing the difference between an analogy and a metaphor. Let's boil that down. I hate myself. Uh, I love the fact that I'm going to end this episode on an awfulsome moment filled out by a person who chose the pseudonym, My Dog's Gross Red Boner. That, it, if I can sum up the joy of being your own boss, deciding that my dog's gross boner, my dog's gross red boner is going to be the last thing read. Um, this is an awfulsome moment. And she writes, my father was absent frequently throughout my life due to owning a multi-million dollar crane and transportation business. And while I have definitely gotten great financial security out of his lifestyle, I have also gotten some extreme mental issues from him. He is also a narcissistic, high-functioning alcoholic, so you can only imagine how fun family dinners are. We have fought several times about his shortcomings as a father and his opposing views about what it means to be a, quote, good father. Anyways, Christmas came, and as usual, I got more than enough extravagant gifts from him that I truly don't need. However, one really took the cake. It was a book called Think and Grow Rich for Women. Just to be clear that the book was, in fact, for women. Oh, just to be clear. Oh, just to be clear that the book was, in fact, for women. There was a diamond right on the front cover because, after all, that is the ultimate pinnacle for a woman's success. But that's not all. On the inside was a semi-considerate inscription by him that explained that the original version of this book helped him create his business when he was my age and that I could learn a lot. It also included my name, but spelled completely wrong. I pointed it out to him, and all he had to say was, hmm, I guess I was just so caught up in the emotion I lost track of spelling. Maybe if you've been present for your daughter's life, you may remember how to spell her goddamn name. That was her saying that last part. Oh, my God. That is that is fucking Hall of Fame awfulsome. Thank you for that. And I'm so sorry that that is... Um, the dad that you got dealt. And I'm also sorry that so many people will withhold compassion from you because you have material wealth. So many people don't understand that material wealth and emotional wealth are two completely separate things. And um, anyway, Thank you guys all for your surveys. Thank you so much for your your beautiful emails of support these last couple of weeks. Um, for those of you that don't uh, know, my, my wife and I split up. And um, yeah, it's, um, I don't want to go into it too much. She's a, she's a, a very private person. I, I want to try to respect her privacy, but um, I will say that it's, it's extremely amicable and um um and i am getting to see the dogs 
and um, that includes Herbert's butthole. And uh, <laughs> anyway, I hope you got something out of uh, this week's episode. I hope you feel a little more hopeful, uh, a little more insight, a little more peace, um, a little more motivated. Um, I hope most of all that you know that you're not alone. And um, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.